welcome to Song and Plants. My name is Carmen Porter. In this episode, I was joined by Ben Falk of Whole Systems Design. His knowledge of the land, growing systems, and permaculture design are steeped in experience, making his teachings personal and profoundly insightful. Water nurtures lush vegetation, and through various means, Ben has mastered capturing water to feed and nurture landscapes. I was delighted to have the opportunity to chat with him about his methods. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Welcome to Song and Plants. Would you mind introducing yourself? Sure. My name is Ben Falk, and I'm a site planner, landscape architect, property homestead designer, and manager. I live with the systems that I help others design and set up and consult on myself try to grow a bunch of my own food, live a healthy life, try to produce an abundance for more than just my family to share locally, especially. And we teach others how to, how to do this through permaculture courses and some other courses. And uh, I have a book that shares a lot of, well, some of what we've learned. I've been doing this pretty intensively on my own sites for 20 years and been kind of into permaculture and ecological design for I guess close to about 30 now. Yeah, I'm in central Vermont, and I look forward to chatting with you about water systems, especially today, but really about anything you'd like. You know, our focus is improving the health of the place we live while gleaning enough yields to supply us with our basic needs like food and fuel and medicine and health, wellness, and many of the other things that, that we need day to day. Absolutely. Well, thank you very much for joining me. The way you work water on your land is just absolutely astonishing. What are some of your preferred methods of keeping water from leaving or running off of your site? Well, I think those would fall into the categories of swales, like on-contour ditches, ponds, terraces. Building soil is you know, always applicable building as much organic matter as possible. Rice paddies were one of those systems we experimented a lot with on one site, but we don't really implement them anymore. And just permanent cover, green cover, plants, especially deep-rooting perennial plants. I think you could say that's a way of keeping water on site as well. Yeah, those are, those are the main ones, I think. What do you plant into your swales? Well, we plant generally on the mounds. That's part of the swale. You know, it's kind of like a ditch and then a mound. And on the mounds or right halfway down the mounds, depending on the size of them, we plant pretty much anything you could think of that's like woody perennials. We don't do annuals on them in general, but any woody of the dozens and scores of trees and shrubs that we grow, we plant there. And when you're looking at a site, what sort of considerations are you assessing when looking for pond siting or where you would use the different types of water retention systems? What aspects of the site am I looking for? Yeah. Well, really, I'm taking into account anything and everything, but a particular import is the slope, how steep it is, the soil type, the shape whether it's in a valley or a ridge or in between. Those are 
the primary things. Aspect comes into play to some extent. Goals, of, of course, of the client or whoever is, you know, desiring to implement such a system is a big one as well. But the climate, of course, those are the big ones. What would you say would be a good place to put a pond? Like where, what in the landscape would you look for? Mm-hmm. Well, generally, the the most typical place you're looking to put a pond is in an area where there's overland flow or below a spring, which is less common. But typically, the way we implement ponds is to catch, store, and slow water's flow downhill in valleys. And when I say valley, I mean you know, very small valleys compared to what most people think of as valleys. Any little you know, low point in a landscape where water may intermittently even flow. So even like micro valleys. An acre to 20 acres would be like a typical watershed to feed a small pond where I live and work and kind of, well, all over the country we've done this kind of work. So, you know, even that applies to really anywhere. I mean, the drier the climate, maybe the larger the watershed you would need to feed a viable pond. And sometimes more. I mean, sometimes, you know, you have hundreds of acres going into a pond, but often just 5, 10, 20, 30 acres. I have a lot of ponds personally that are only an acre to 10 acres of watershed that feeds into the pond, you know, and again, intermittently, not not year-round really on any of them. In the driest part of the year, there's no input to a lot of these ponds or pretty much all of the ones that I manage. So how do you get that pond to be funneling or collecting that water from such a large area? Well, it's you locate it in a valley where that water runs into. Okay. So you can also put ditches across the slope, pitch downhill towards the pond, so they're going uphill slightly across the slope, like arms outreaching into the landscape to catch more water and bring that water into the pond. Kind of the opposite you would often see above a house that's on a slope where water's a problem to get water around a house, like a curtain drain, curtain ditch. Yeah. You do the opposite, like a, a catching ditch to bring water toward the pond. So you're catching a wider watershed. That can be a common way to add, you know, make sure you're, you're harvesting more water for your pond. We also pretty much always put roof water into our ponds when we can by adding gutters to buildings or capturing if there's already gutters, you know, where that water's going and sending that water to the pond. I guess you're using the soil to filter the water so you don't get a lot of silt or Well, there's a lot of ways to catch this. You're usually you're looking to put a forebay in or a system of swales above the pond to catch any silt that may be moving through the landscape so you don't fill the pond with silt. Mm -hmm. So yeah, you want to catch all that because even naturally materials moving through the landscape in water and you want to fill up like small swales or ditches first and not your pond or a forebay, which is like a mini pond or both. You want a series of basically very little catchments above your main pond. So you're reducing the amount that you your core pond is going to fill in over time with sediment. Okay. And you also, of course, you know, want to basically manage for no erosion in that watershed. So permanent cover, not like a lot of 
vehicle impact or equipment impact, grazing carefully if you do graze in those areas, you know, all the things that would keep erosion to a minimum, permanent green cover, not tilling, ideally careful use of any roadways that might be in, in those areas, et cetera, et cetera. And how does soil type play into all of that? Well, in a lot of different ways, the pond itself needs heavy soil to hold water. So you need either very heavy silt or ideally clay, and it needs to be built carefully such that you're able to make an impermeable strata that the water doesn't move through. If you're on, you know, sandy soil or light silts or gravels, you generally have to use a liner of some sort, whether it's polyethylene or EPDM or bentonite clay, like rollout liner, or bring in, import clay from ideally somewhere else on the site or not so ideally offsite to actually line the pond. We've pretty much done all of the above, everything except the bentonite liner. We've even built ponds on sand and even some gravelly material with clay from offsite, and that worked. So you can make a pond happen in a lot of places if you're willing to do a lot of extra work or spend a lot of extra money or both. But the most, you know, elegant places where ponds fit the most naturally and harmoniously with less of that expense and energy or where you have, let's say, a nice valley with a bunch of water going through it, at least intermittently, and some nice clay soils. That's the most feasible place to put a pond. But depends on the scale, too. I mean, you know, you could put a small pond for not a whole lot of expense with just rainwater off of a roof on rocky gravelly soil and you just use a liner and don't make a very big pond and you have like essentially like a natural swimming pool and it can be really great so it depends also what we mean by a pond you know i mean where i live typically people are talking about a pretty decent sized water body bigger than like most pools but it doesn't have to be that and i suppose knowing the site and doing soil tests on the site can also help for determining where to put it in that very often there are, like you said, pockets of clay or pockets of different material. Yeah, but typically you look at the land shape first and you look at the soil second. You definitely always look at both. You want to always look at both. But when I do consults helping people determine pond feasibility and optimal locations, we're looking at the siting first and the soil second. And when I say siting, I mean where is a valley shape ideally, or where can a lot of water go to via roofs, parking areas, roadways, you know, things that catch impermeable conveyances in the landscape. Those can allow for a feasible pond too in a place that's not a valley if you can just get a lot of water to it or enough. And for a lot of ponds, people really get the most value out of them if they're in zone one. In permaculture speak, that is in a place you spend a lot of time, the area of the landscape that you use every day, near a home, near your main garden, where you park a car, you know, et cetera, et cetera, like in your sphere of high interactivity, not where you maybe only go a couple times a week, things like that. Not that those can't be also very useful for different farm functions, and we have ponds like that too, but generally the highest value ponds are, are kind of in your most used areas. And that's where you tend to have a lot of buildings. So you tend to have a lot of easy water harvesting. Our roof surface is 100% impermeable. 
all but living roofs, and they can evaporate some. So you're going to be able to harvest, you know, 600 some odd gallons for every inch of rain that lands on a roof per thousand square feet of surface. That can add up pretty quick. And when you're collecting it and funneling it into the pond, are you just using a gutter system or are you moving it through water systems before it gets to your main catchment? Both. I mean, we have a pond that I'm lying near right now where the water that just, it just rained quarter inch an hour ago. It's awesome. And I went and checked out because it hasn't been raining much lately. I ran out, got nice and soaked during the rain event to see the water coming out of a, about a 150 feet of four inch, 10 foot pipe, you know, the green drain pipe that catches water from the downspout of a very long gutter. And, you know, maybe 10 gallons a minute was coming out of that tube right into one of our ponds. And then it actually goes into a little like erosion control armored little basin, like hand dug basin with a whole bunch of rocks around it to reduce erosion, then trickles into one pond via over more rocks again to just reduce erosion because there's like a couple vertical feet that has to fall into the pond and then it goes out that pond down a stone line creek which we built in a permaculture course and then through a series of like two four bays and then into a much bigger pond which you may have seen photos of that i posted recently this latest pond we built so where water wants to run we're always trying to help let it walk and get the most distance out of its path through the landscape and not shunt it. So whereas the modern world of industrial design and engineering is always trying to basically pollute it, pipe it, pump it, forget it, try to get it out of our way, just get it to the oceans, get it to a river, to the oceans, you know, polluted, get it out of sight. We're trying to do the opposite. We're trying to slow it, spread it, sink it, convey it over very low angle grades to let it move through the landscape like its course is within an intestinal type of system. Like think of how water moves through animals. We're trying to extend its stay and get the most value by interacting with it as possible, not shunt it out immediately. And that's what we're trying to do in the landscape as well. If regeneration and, you know, just value is our goal. Mm. So would you say when starting, like when somebody is wanting to start a project, is that one of the primary things that they should be considering before putting in the garden, before putting in other points of interest that they should consider building the land for water? Yes, mm -hmm, definitely. That's a great question. And uh, yes is, is the answer for sure. <laughs> it, it's, it's often not done that way. That's why I'm kind of chuckling, but yes. There's this great rubric for landscape design called the scale of permanence that helps elucidate the importance of looking at features and processes in the landscape that are most permanent around which you want to design everything else. And it's a gradient. So water is very high on the list because it's connected with land shape. So you can put upon like maybe here or there, maybe one or let's say two places in a landscape, but you could maybe put a house in more places or a garden, even in more places or 
a fence in even more places, et cetera, et cetera. So like there's, there's more primary and less primary things to cite in order and definitely water land shape is very high on the scale of permanence. You want to have other things pivot around their ideal locations, not the other way around. So often, of course, it's not done that way. People put the house in, you know, kind of as the first step in, let's say a rural property type of situation I'm thinking of, because that's what most of my work is. And then they'll say, oh yeah, like we want a pond near the house too, but they put the house in a place where a pond really isn't feasible in that area. So they're out of luck in that situation because they didn't honor the scale of permanence, you know, in their thinking, but yeah, for sure. You want to think about land shape more primarily than building locations, usually let's say, hmm. and landscape and water are intimately connected. And you also do multi-tiered ponds. So you're moving water from one pond to the next pond down the landscape. So that's using gravity to feed the ponds. Yeah, we're letting gravity move the water from one to the next. It's just, it's just again, following that rubric of trying to get the most value, interact with the water the most before it's off-site. Spread it, sink it, utilize it as much as possible. But I've also seen you move water uphill. How do you do that? Well, that requires a pump of some kind. So usually we like to use as passive systems as possible. So like we're big fans of ram pumps lately, but I've also used solar slow pumps as well. But generally we're trying not to move water uphill. I mean, I do have a well pump, you know, an electric well pump that moves water uphill out of the ground to my home and to the garden. But then we have like a solar pump and ram pumps to kind of back those systems up for when those systems will fail. Is your irrigation mostly for your your crops for yeah for my garden my veggie garden is is pretty much where most of the water gets used mm -hmm. i would say like 90 percent of our water gets used well on the farm right now probably veggies use the most followed by cows five cows probably the next biggest use and then domestic water which is mostly washing not drink you know you don't drink very much water compared to how much you used to shower and wash dishes that kind of thing would be the next you know the next biggest use and so when you're watering when you're irrigating your vegetables is that mostly gravity fed or are you using the ram pump for that well so the ram pump is in combination with gravity feed so like right now day to day i water my garden off our well because the well pump's working and it's easy quick it's all set up for that but if and when the well pump breaks, and it has actually in the past already, or the power's out, or any number of things are not working so that I don't have the well water, then I can gravity feed from tanks that are about 40 vertical feet above the garden, which are filled by a ramp pump. So for water to get into those tanks, the ramp pump has to work. But that ramp pump is run only on gravity and the power of water itself. It's a water-powered pump, which sounds kind of weird, but they're pretty amazing. And that fills those tanks. And so then gravity does the work of bringing that water from those tanks. It's 1,300 gallons of storage. It's like five IBC totes, those 
275-ish gallon plastic totes in the woods above the house, and then they can go through a series of three-quarter inch lines to come out of my garden and drip irrigate the vegetables that way. And also they could feed the house. I mean, I wouldn't drink that water. Ideally, I would drink from my spring if the well was down, uh, when the well is down. But uh, you could boil it and drink it, no problem. I mean, you probably could drink it direct and be fine too if your microbiome was used to it. It's coming from a very clean pond. Did you already know where your spring was located or did you find it? On one of our sites, we knew where the spring was because it was developed before we got the property. And on the other site, we've found three so far. Wow. Or four, really, about four. We've developed three of them to some extent, some very much so. And then there's the fourth spot that we haven't developed, but we know there's a spring there. We didn't know any of those were there when we got the property, but we knew, I knew that the property would probably yield a spring or multiple springs just given the shape and the size and the location of the property. So I wasn't really surprised to find those springs, but it took me some years to actually find them. And, and every, every, every couple of years, I basically found a new one. I mean, if I look more, I'd probably find more, but we kind of have enough right now. Uh, there's more and probably in other parts of the property that are like zone four, you know, it would be like a thousand feet of piping to get that water and we don't need it. So I found the ones that are like close to zone one. What was I looking for? Mm-hmm. Well, I was looking for water, but I was looking for signs of water, like sign of water. Like you're looking for an animal, like water leaves tracks in just the way an animal leaves tracks, but obviously through different means. But you want to look in the dry season. So if you're looking in spring in New England, you're going to find springs everywhere, or you're going to think they're springs, but they're not. They're just seeps, very seasonal, like intermittent seeps that are not real springs. So you want to look starting around now, August, September, sometimes October, when things really dry up. I'm speaking to the Northeastern United States, Canada, southeastern Canada type of climate right now, cold human climates in the northern hemisphere or maybe in general. But wherever you are, you want it when it's dry is when you want to look for water. And when it's wet is when you want to look for dry ground. That's like when you can tell where those places truly exist. So when you're looking for the water, are you digging? That is not the first step. But yes, eventually you will be digging usually. Initially, You're looking for shape, land shape, and plants to tell you. Those are the two main clues, I think, that you will be using to find water. There's a third, which is dowsing, which I don't practice per se. I've taken workshops, a couple different dowsing workshops, and worked with a couple dowsers. I feel like I probably could douse, but I haven't felt the need to because I so far have been able to find water pretty well by those other two methods, which is looking for the land shape. So generally at the key line in the landscape or the key point is where you tend to find water. So from where a slope moves from steep to some extent, relatively steep to less steep, it doesn't have to be very steep, but a certain angle to a lower angle. So often in the hills of New England, that would be, let's say a 10, 20, 30% slope changing to a five, well, eight, five or less percent slope. It's that inflection point from where a slope 
goes from steeper to less steep, the concavity in the slope. That's where water tends to express itself. And the bigger the slope you have uphill, the more likely it is you're going to find water in that general type of spot in the landscape. So if you want to find water and you have like a 500 vertical foot hill, let's say, and you look at in that concavity anywhere along that, at some point you're going to find water in a climate that's generally a pretty humid climate, well-watered climate. It's just a question of where. That's a pretty reliable thing. It may be in the dry season, four or five feet down, and in the wet season, expressing itself on the surface. But there's water there usually. And then if that slope continues, which hopefully it does to some extent, you can dig down and get that water out via gravity because there's still a slope dropping that you can get water out. You can't move water uphill without a pump. So you have to then pipe that water out to daylight to access it, you know, like a horizontal or just below horizontal pipe through the wall of the spring tile or a box that you're digging into the ground to access the groundwater. So that's called developing a spring. There's a bunch of ways to do it, but they're all basically doing the same thing. Accessing the groundwater and then allowing it to flow downhill slightly out to daylight where it can be used. Or stay below ground and then come into a house, basement, or wherever your point of use is. Plants are the other clue and they do a really great job of telling you and can tell more than you might think rushes and sedges and willows and alders and other water loving plants not just water loving plants because all plants love water but plants that tend to be like wetland associative plants if you see something like cattails like a true like marsh plant then you have like perenni almost perennial water usually. But often where there's not a ton of water, but there's some water, you'll see sedges. If there's a little more water, you'll see rushes. If there's even more water, you'll see cattails. I mean, if you see cattails, you probably don't need the cattails to tell you there's water there if you're looking carefully. <laughs> but willows and alders can tell you in places that aren't really all that wet, or at least to an initial eye, depending on the time of year. And it's interesting, before I found the spring, I had a dowser out here, this older guy named Leonard Robinson, who's a real local legend. And he found a few different veins of water. And I didn't really do anything with them because wherever he found them, he said, like, this is 10 feet down or deeper. And I don't have the means to dig 10 feet down, really, or it's not worth it for me or and wasn't and definitely still isn't. So I never explored those spots. One of the springs I found was about 100 feet downhill of the spot he said is 10 feet, the vein's 10 feet deep. Well, we didn't walk down there, but it turns out 100 feet downhill, that vein was expressing itself at the surface one dry season. In September, when I was walking through that area barefoot, I stepped into like ankle deep, very cold water, and it hadn't rained in like a month. So I knew instantly that didn't come from any rain. That's, that's groundwater. It's cold and there's water at the surface. So that's the first spring I developed here. Incidentally, there was no indication that that had been ever developed. There was no depression or mound or anything. It was just like a smooth part of the landscape, just like everything around it. And I was sure when I was digging it that I had found a spring that had never been found before. Well, I was totally wrong. I got four feet down and found 
planed wooden boards, like cedar or hemlock boards that were handled, but like human, you know, shaped boards, four feet under the ground, wood. So someone had developed that spring probably in the 1800s or maybe late 1700s. And at some point, someone had filled it in, buried everything there. But what I was going to get to is that later, when we started letting a lot of vegetation grow, parts of the site had just been kind of mowed and brush hogged regularly. And just 10 years later, basically this year, I noticed the spot that Leonard had said I could find water 10 feet down is on a very steep hill, about 100 feet above the spring, horizontal feet and 10 vertical feet, let's say. Makes sense, right? 10 feet down and that vein is, that's the same water. And there now is a willow growing quickly out of that spot. I didn't plant it, but we just let stuff, whatever volunteered in that area that wanted to grow, we just let grow. We just stopped mowing that area. And it turns out there's a willow there just raging. They didn't know that water's there because it's pretty interesting if you think about it because willows aren't growing in most of this landscape. It's pretty odd that a willow would be there. The ground is not wet at all there. I mean, it's actually very dry. It's a steep slope, well-drained soil. So that willow is only getting water when it's tapping quite far down. Like it didn't get water for the first couple years anyway, or I mean, not initially. It wasn't like seed landed on wet ground and started, or that when you see a lot of willows and alders, they're starting in wet ground where other stuff doesn't grow as well. And they're kind of thicketing and they're established in those areas and they're dispersing in those areas or running along them. So this is like an island where there was no willows anywhere nearby and it's dry ground and there's this willow thriving and it has to get probably about 10 feet down, or at least, I know for sure, at least six to eight feet down before there's any real moisture. Leonard says it's 10 feet down. So it's it seems like you know, that willow knew something about that spot, is what it seems like. So it's kind of interesting. So then, then the other spring I developed on this property, one of the other two, was it also at a key point in the landscape where well, it goes from steeper to less steep, quite a ways out of zone one, very kind of remote like in the woods and I walked into some wet water as well in the dry season I could just see the ground was wet I kind of dug down a little just with my hand and the ground seemed really wet and I had my excavator in the area that's actually why I was checking it out before I was going to move the excavator away just a little mini excavator and then I went in there and dug and I started hitting water and I was like well this one's definitely never been developed because I mean I'm in the woods like you know it doesn't feel like anywhere near where people lived even though I knew in the back of my head, people have lived kind of everywhere in the hills of Vermont. And I knew there's an old foundation downhill of the spot, actually. Turns out I get like three, four buckets in and I hit this huge piece of wood. You don't find wood two, three, four feet down in the ground unless someone put it there. You know, that's not where wood ends up. <laughs> and it was perfectly straight log. As soon as I pull it up, water starts pouring out of one end of it. And I knew immediately, I never seen one of these except in a book, but I knew it was a pump log just instantly just because I, that's the only way that can happen. It turns out I jump out of the excavator and there's a bored hole on both ends of the log. Someone had made that. That's how they used to make water pipe. They bore holes end to end. And someone made that in the late 1700s or 1800s. And the last person touching that log was 200 years ago or 250 years ago. 
So I realized all of a sudden, wow, I'm, I'm like in an archaeological site. Like I better, <laughs> I better stop running this machine and be more careful. You know, I eventually found about 10 of those wow. in that area and then towards our home from that area. And there's more on the ground for sure. I would love to map them and maybe eventually unearth them all and get them in a museum or hang them up. But they're there and they don't rot really when they're in the ground because they're just in anoxic, you know, they don't have really any oxygen there. What kind of wood? Some kind of softwood. It, pretty hard to tell. I would think hemlock, but I think they used even spruce or fir too, but definitely softwood. About six to eight inches in diameter, bored perfectly end to end, a hole on one end, a hole on the other. They're both in the exact middle of the log. That's amazing. And these logs are eight and nine feet long, basically. Wow. And they're not little, they're not little sections. They're long. And one has a male end and one has a female end. One has a flared end and one has, an, you know, an open, open facing end. So they fit together and seal. Yeah, it's pretty amazing technology. They actually outlive modern plumbing from what I've heard from people. Like they're still in use in some cities. There's still these wood water pipes. Really? Yeah. Mm -hmm. The Midwest I've heard there is. I know in Vermont they've been kind of replacing them over the years, but... I've heard some engineers say the metal water pipe actually rusts out quicker and maybe the plastic will last longer. We don't know yet. I mean, that stuff's all new. That's pretty fascinating. And it would probably require quite a lot of land movement to install them. Yeah, I mean, this is, you know, 150 years before any type of heavy equipment. So they're digging these trenches by hand two to four feet down. That's where I found them. You couldn't find anyone do that work today. Uh, <laughs> seemingly any old farmer did that work, you know, back in the day or, or had someone who did. So when you're mentioning the vegetation, what plants do you tend to plant like in your ponds or along your shores? What are plants that you tend to prefer? Kind of any and all plants that would add diversity and wildlife habitat or food for people as well. So like we go to Vermont Wetland Plant Supply and other wetland plant providers and sow wetland plant mixes at the okay. edge before the pond fills up. And we're going for a lot of rushes and reeds and a whole bunch, you know, there's like dozens of plants. We never really sow cattail because that comes in. That just is latent in the environment. It seems it comes in even if you're far from a pond. So I've never actually had to sow cattail and they're usually more than abundant. I often will weed them so there's room for other plants. We'll sow wild rice too. That's actually kind of taking hold in all of our ponds to some extent. The high diversity is key for just water quality and habitat, beauty. So if you have something like willow coming in, are you going to take it out? No, not, not necessarily. I've barely ever removed a willow around a pond. I don't know if I have. I've cut them back sometimes, but they're great for water quality for everything for wildlife habitat, human uses, early bee forage. I mean, I wouldn't want a willow, let's say, shading where I hang out by a pond because they're a big plant. The main plants that we sow that we see coming up, because we sow a lot of plants that just kind of never do anything. I'd say sweet flag is a big one. Marsh marigold sometimes where it's like a little drier. And then bulrush is really great. There's a whole bunch of sedges that come up. Joe pieweed does well where it's like drier edges. Cardinal flower is good also where it's kind of drier and other lobelias and pickerel weed. Those are some of the big ones besides like cattail, 
And also blue flag iris is a great one. And so is there sort of a balance between what you're seeding and encouraging and then the volunteers that come in? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. We're seeding a lot knowing that that's going to represent less than what would naturally come in from the area. Mm -hmm. We're just trying to increase the diversity of what would be there. But, you know, especially if you're building ponds near other ponds, and especially if it's downhill, you're going to get a lot of dispersion from those other plants. And do you use a lot of what comes out of the pond? No. I mean, not directly. I guess you could say enhanced wildlife habitat is something we use. But as far as like harvest and consume or make stuff with in a direct way, I would say most of what's in the pond we don't forage. Sometimes parts of cattails and wild rice, fish sometimes, which we stock in some ponds. On the edges, there's a lot of stuff that grows, like aronia and seaberry and elderberry and cranberry that we do use directly and current. Those are on like drier edges, but still pretty wet zones. How would you say that bringing the water into your landscape has really benefited your site? What are the, some of the highlights, the things that you really appreciate about having water on site? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, swimming and cold plunges are a big one just for health and enjoyment microclimate enhancement for extending seasons because they hold the heat and kind of buffer temperature swings for some of the year definitely not in the winter because they're frozen over beauty and light like daylighting of buildings the light comes off the ponds into buildings wildlife habitat and that's also plays into beauty we see all sorts of wildlife that wouldn't be here the soundscape is massive i mean we just listen to bullfrogs all night now twanging away and before that it's the american toad and then before that it's the peepers and the wood frogs those are all sounds that just wouldn't really be in this landscape at all there might be some of those animals in some of the wetlands but if we didn't dig any of the ponds there'd be none of those guys have you noticed like mosquito populations go down Yeah, I've seen those go down, exactly. It's not like the water wasn't there. It was just kind of subterranean and or in little, like, intermittent pools, which is really good for mosquitoes. And once you dig all that wet ground out, it doesn't always have to be wet ground, but when you change that to an open water situation, then the frogs and salamanders and everyone has access to the water. It doesn't tend to be a place that mosquitoes succeed in. Mm -hmm. I I think all those amphibians keep them from happening. They're eating their larvae, I guess. The bugs really come from like wet ground versus open water, Mm -hmm. which is a common misperception because I think most everyone thinks, oh, you make all these ponds, you're going to make it super buggy. Not if you're really careful that all the water that's in the area is in the pond or that you're not having like random little pools next to the ponds, which poor grading poor heavy equipment use can certainly result in if you're not careful. You mentioned the project that you just published, you just presented <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, I just shared a couple photos. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Well, that's just the latest pond that I've dug here, Pondscape. We don't just do ponds, we do it integrated. The ponds are part of a whole landscape, so everything around the pond is part of that Pondscape. That's just a nice, pretty good size pond with a big garden terrace around it and 
It's going to feed a very large ram pump. We call it the garden pond. Better to look at photos of it. I could paint a poor picture with words, but I'm looking at it right now. It's a great pond. It's really beautiful. It's very impressive. And it's amazing how you've integrated the food system into the water system. It just looks like a beautiful place to be as well. (laughs) Right. Yeah, it certainly is. It's a great. My son loves it. I mean, it's a playscape for all of us. It's our healthcare facility. It's where we go and sunbathe and swim and exercise and stretch and play. We have a wood-fired sauna and jump in the pond. And then it's huge buffer for the garden that's there and the microclimate buffer and water. I mean, so I still have the water. I'll dip my watering can in there. I generally don't do a lot of watering with watering can, but when it's right next to a pond, it's pretty practical too, mm-hmm. even at a decent home scale. You mentioned currents a couple minutes ago, and this is a little off topic, but I'm really curious. What do you do with white currants and black currants? Well, white currants, I pretty much just eat directly fresh, and that's it. Okay. Black currants, we eat fresh, and we make meat out of them, and we freeze them to make popsicles and syrups and smoothies, and then mead sometimes in the winter, or just juices, like aids mixed with water and a little honey like a natural gatorade type of thing mm. so black currant's great for that i'm not big on jams and jellies but it's like amazing for those if you're into that they just grow so abundantly yeah the black currant's like the easiest berry you could grow you know besides for maybe aronia berry but much more versatile than aronia i mean i love aronia too that's a pretty versatile plant but you're gonna grow one berry you don't want to fuss over it. Black currants in this climate, I think it's definitely at the top of the list for me. What do you do with aronia? Aronia, we make juices and meads. Okay. Mostly. I think I've made some fruit leather too, but I don't consume much fruit leather. I mean, I no longer really consume fruit in the winter except in the form of juices a little bit and mead. I used to freeze tons of fruit to have smoothies and then I've, for me, learned that like when it's cold out, a smoothie, <laughs> a frozen fruit smoothie is not, <laughs> is not the thing to, yeah. to consume. Increasingly, I'm trying to make a lot of mead with them in the summer while they're fresh because I don't want to freeze them because then the yeast, I think, is affected. So what are some of your current projects and where can people find you? Well, usually where I live, but don't, don't come visit unless you can't. <laughs> <laughs> don't come find me, but... That's where I am most of the time. I guess you can find me, so to speak, online on our website, wholesystemsdesign.com. Or, I mean, the best things come to our permaculture course if you want to learn. Permaculture course and consulting and our apprenticeship are how I generally work with other people. And then we do design work. My larger company, Whole Systems Design Collective, does site planning for people after we do a consult, usually. Yeah, so wholesystemsdesign.com is... Probably the easiest thing to remember, way to connect. Perfect. I'll put the links in the show notes and any other links that you want to have, I'll include there. Sure. And also I'll put a link to where you would suggest people buy your book. Okay, that sounds good. Well, I appreciate that. Well, thank you very much for joining me and I hope we'll speak again soon. Yeah, thanks a lot. Appreciate your time. Thanks for listening. As mentioned, the links are in the show notes. If you're enjoying the content, please consider heading over to CarmenPorter.com and joining my mailing list. 
I send out an email with plant tips, garden insights, and latest news. I'm always eager to connect with other plant people. Happy harvesting.